My wish is for us to continue to ask questions and to be curious when it comes to not believing everything that we read, not taking everything, all of these constructs and structures that we are kind of so used to and comfortable within for granted, because I think that this time has shown us that those things can be taken away, those things can change, and they are out of our control. Welcome back. This is the Trippin Podcast. Trippin is a travel platform powered by a global community of creative minds. And in this podcast, we bring you conversations with pushers of culture and progress the world over. We're now on episode four, and this week's guest is someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a minute. For those of us who have traveled the world freely and frequently in the not so distant past, this period of having our movements restricted bears some resemblance to the plight of refugees from around the globe, being separated from loved ones, the uncertainty, but also the resilience and strength that can be generated in times of difficulty. Through her organization, the Worldwide Tribe, Jazz O'Hara provides a diverse range of support for refugees, from technology to art therapy, to coordinating food, shelter, and rescue programs on the ground. Her podcast, The Worldwide Tribe, champions the stories of real people on the front lines across all borders. Using creativity, storytelling, and community, Jazz is growing both awareness and movement in response to the refugee crisis. This conversation was recorded remotely from quarantine, featuring a few outdoor sounds such as construction, the odd siren, and a bit of bird song. But please don't let that distract you too much. This is an episode that will hopefully open your minds and hearts and provide some options for how we can all play a part in making the world a safer and more welcoming place. My name is Yasmin. This is the Tripping Podcast with special guest Jazz O'Hara. Yeah. Hello, Jazz, and welcome to the Trippin' Podcast. It's super nice to have you on the end of the line. How's it going for you? Yeah, all is well here in London. All is well. I'm getting quite into this lockdown business. Yes, yeah, so we are we are recording this from lockdown. It's the first Trippin' Podcast that we've recorded from lockdown. I feel like I need to make a few disclaimers right off the bat. There is a bit of wildlife where I am. <laughs> some of it is beautiful bird song, and some is a cockerel that doesn't make <laughs> the most sweetest sounds. Um, And to top it all off, I just became the mother of a little puppy the other day. So there's there's some, there's potential for some background noise, but we'll consider it as ambiance. We're working with what we've got out here, this recording from home. So yeah, how are you doing? How have you been feeling and keeping your spirits high and your energy high during, you know, finger quotes, these times? You know what? Um, It's been definitely a shift for me. I'm used to doing a lot of running around all over the place and lots of travel and I work a lot internationally. Um, So yeah, it's definitely a change in pace, but I think it was something that was a long time coming for me and I actually needed. Um, And it's been a whole um, new perspective on a lot of things and the future of the Worldwide Tribe. So actually, I think it's a really good time to, yeah, just re-look at how you want to take things forward. Yeah, for sure. Like take a step back and regroup and reevaluate. I mean, I met you actually at like a women's business workshop. I think it was back in 2017. And we were both there to learn more about how to build and grow our respective projects. 
the project I was there for was tripping and definitely a lot has happened since that since that time and I clearly remember you and I were in the same group and you know we kind of all had to go around and introduce ourselves and our business or idea and naturally there were a lot of product and service-based businesses like brands creatives but when you introduced who you are and what you do and what you're trying to amplify with the worldwide tribe I was really moved by it and and super inspired and I've kind of been following your journey ever since. So for for those of you that don't know and this is your first time hearing about the Worldwide Tribe, it is an organization an online community raising awareness of the refugee crisis as well as supporting those caught up in it. There is so much I want to talk to you about your amazing podcast and bunch of things, but let's just kind of start right there. Can you take us back to the first experience that really sparked your vision for the Worldwide Tribe? Yeah, of course I can. So it was back in 2015. So that's why I think that, again, this is quite a a pivotal shift because it's been five years now, um, which feels like a nice chunk of time to kind of, yeah, re-look at, okay, what what do I want to happen next? But it was 2015, around this time of the year, um, coming into the summer, that my mum and dad were coming to the end of a um, process to, they were looking into adoption, basically. As they were coming to the end of the process, it looked very likely that our new brother and sister would actually be an unaccompanied minor coming from the Calais jungle, um, because at the time there were quite a lot of kids arriving and needing families, basically. And at the time I worked in, in the fashion industry, I didn't really know much about um, yeah, this situation. I didn't know anything about refugees um, and the fact that there were so many kids not coming from Syria, which is kind of where I thought of when I thought of the word refugee. But coming from Eritrea and Afghanistan and uh, Sudan and and all over the world, actually. Um, So, yeah, I had a lot of questions um, because of that process. And I was very frustrated that I couldn't really find those answers in the mainstream media, which at the time was very dehumanizing about the people that were living in Calais. So I basically went to try and find out a little bit more for myself, really. Um, it was a curiosity, a naive curiosity that took me there with no idea <laughs> of what to expect. And uh, yeah, it was pretty overwhelming um, and and different from the perception that the media kind of gives you. It was, it was totally different. Mm-hmm. That first curiosity trip that took you to Cali, can you tell me a bit about what, what kind of went into it, the pre-planning that you did kind of how you were feeling on the journey there and like your first impressions on arriving? A very little pre-planning, I have to say. Um, <laughs> it was That's very- the trip in spirit right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say it was naive because I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to get in my car and go. Um, I think I had the Tuesday off because I was going to a trade fair on the Wednesday with work really early. Um, so it was, a, I remember it really well. It was at the weekend, it was Sunday. It was kind of sunny and we were sitting in the garden and my dad was reading the paper and there was some headline about aggression or like violence in Calais or something like that. And um, yeah, my mum was like, it was actually my mum who said like, oh, I'd love to go and find out more. And I was like, yeah, me too. Like, why don't I just do that on Tuesday when I've got a day off? Um, So I think I roped my brother and like a friend into coming with me. But a lot of people at the time were very much like, you can't just go to a refugee camp. And the thing is, they're probably right to have a bit more kind of uh, apprehension about just going, but I did just go and there was no kind of restrictions. There was no, um, you know, 
anyone could go in and come out. And what I found there was literally just, it was more of a slum than an organized camp. Um, there was no one running it, no volunteers at the time at all. Um, no one from the UK. I met one French woman who had been supporting refugees in Calais for a long time, a Calais local, Maya, who went on to become an absolute hero of mine. Um, but yeah, it was very, I mean, we we packed the car with some stuff that we thought that people would need, like some warm clothing and some food and stuff. But as I say, I knew very little at the time and did very little planning. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like what kind of things um, on arriving, the sort of, or more like, yeah, on arriving, those like um, first impressions with the people that you were meeting and the stories you were hearing. Can you tell us a bit about some of those experiences that, that you had there? Yeah, the um, kind of maybe also just the misconceptions or maybe, you know, it definitely sounds like you're a very open minded and open hearted person, you know, but I think even all of us, like you said, when we're not educated and we're not getting like the right information through the news, like I think, you know, most people that aren't like aware of this situation have these kind of misconceptions and I'd love to hear just any stories of when those were kind of like blown away. Yeah okay so the first guy that I met was an Afghan guy who took us immediately to his tent and made us a cup of tea and he actually went on to build the first shop or restaurant um, in the camp which was also just in a little shelter a little wooden shelter that he was actually starting to build at the time so he was like yeah um, I've got an idea Um, and he showed us like just the bare bones of like a wooden structure that months later was like thriving as a little business in the camp he was a real entrepreneur Um, Osman his name was and uh he just immediately blew away those um, misconceptions that people might have because he kind of took one look at us and he was like, oh, you look like you haven't been here before. Like, let me take you under my wing and show you around a little bit. Um, Making you feel at home. Yeah, exactly. He made us feel at home in a place where it's very difficult to feel at home. And that was really eye-opening to me that like, even with, you know, minimal, we're literally talking about like tents in the mud and he still made sure that like we had a little seat to sit on and a cup of tea which yeah just blew my mind really and then I met a um a Sudanese guy who went on to become a really good long-term friend who now lives in the UK and he told me his story of fleeing the Janjaweed um in Darfur and I'd, I'd watched a film like years and years previously when I was at university uh, called Attack on Darfur, which had given me like a bit of understanding of the situation there. So I kind of knew what he was talking about. But I was really blown away to to hear. I mean, I've, I'd never have expected to have heard these stories firsthand and I didn't expect to meet Sudanese people there. It was really incredible. And actually, it was the Sudanese community that I became very close to and spent a lot of time within the camp. And like when we stayed in the camp, that's where we stayed. And the camp was kind of organized by nationality which was really cool because you had different cultures and religions and languages and in this one small place which was really really incredible because they're kind of living beautifully alongside each other as well and what was that like return journey like that the sort of aftermath of that initial experience you know what that's a really good question because it was really difficult to get back in the car and so easily be able to cross from the camp um, from Calais to the UK in the comfort of our car in like the space of about 40 minutes you know that journey to Eurostar was so easy for us and people had been telling me all day about 
like making trying to make that same journey but hiding underneath the train or in the back of refrigerated lorries and like all of this crazy stuff risking their lives to to do that same thing and that just didn't it didn't sit well with me it just made me really feel like why like what's the difference what I I own this little purple book that in gives me the right to do it it just it didn't compute with me in any way it was really hard to get my head around and And how do you deal with those thoughts and those emotions because I'm sure that must come up for you a lot you know like just at tripping you know we, we very much recognize like travel for pleasure or traveling for convenience as a privilege you know and just to sort of see how easily that you can move through the world compared to you know some of these people that you're connecting with how do you deal with that yeah, it's a great question. And Yaz, don't you think that like maybe now in this time that that freedom and that ability to travel so freely is taken away from us globally, that maybe there will be a shift in people's mindsets and empathy towards those who haven't had that ability ever, really. And maybe, you know, I I hope that that will be a positive thing to take into the future after this lockdown. The way that I dealt with it in that instance was to write about it like I've always um expressed myself through I've always like written a diary since I was little (laughs) and uh, after that trip I wrote about it on Facebook back when like people still used Facebook a lot more than they do now um and I wrote a post that um just said that I wanted to go to the camp again and it shared the stories of Osman and uh yeah I didn't even say that Osman told me this crazy story that he'd pretty much walked from Afghanistan with a group of Afghans um, and he got left behind in Bulgaria because they were walking through the woods at night and he tripped and he'd been pierced through the eye with a stick. Um, So he had to go to hospital in Sofia and he was in hospital for a few weeks and then he walked the rest of the way and like reconnected with his group in Calais. Um, So he had an amazing story. But yeah, so in that post I wrote about Osman and I wrote about my really my Sudanese friend that I met that day and uh it was that post that really sparked the beginning of the worldwide tribe because it got a lot of traction and uh our little humble just giving page ended up raising like a quarter of a million pounds in like a week mental insane yeah I think it had like an aim of like 50 quid to like cover the cost of the Eurostar or something I don't know but yeah it exceeded all expectation and that's when you kind of knew that all right there's support out there and you just kind of need to channel it. Exactly. I think that's when I realized that a lot of people were ready to hear a different narrative and that people wanted to help and given something to do and like a, a clear way to get involved. Um, because we also put a call out for physical donations of tents and sleeping bags and stuff. People delivered in their, like in, in a big way, you know, we filled like warehouses and after warehouses of physical stuff I mean the first few weeks were pretty crazy because I actually did something really stupid and wrote my address in that post as well so (laughs) so my mum and dad were not happy with me and my brother who's like addressed in Brixton I put in this post like yeah just drop off stuff here because I thought like only my friends and family would see it and I think like I don't know (laughs) millions of people saw it (laughs) yeah it was it went a bit crazy that first um couple of years really were very overwhelming and things happened very quickly and yeah I guess that's why um now it's nice to have a bit of a change of pace and 
things to slow down a little bit because it has been a bit of a roller coaster for the last five years really <laughs> at the moment you know you just got to kind of keep on the journey it doesn't really take a break until literally the whole world takes a break but really thanks to your podcast and and listening more to these stories definitely as this whole sort of lockdown situation was developing across the world that was immediately where my mind went you know was what about what about people in refugee camps that can't social distance that can't have that space yeah, and I just, I mean, I have to thank you because definitely I feel that um, through following the work that you do and listening to the stories that you share, you've just expanded my awareness of what's going on and 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 just the resilience, the tenacity, the, the spirit, people that have just traversed such strenuous circumstances. And so I, I'm really grateful to you for that and also... It segues nicely into one of my favorite episodes of your podcast because it's a conversation between you and your mom, Uda. And can you tell us a bit about your about your mom? Because she's quite a remarkable woman. And from that episode, there definitely seems to be something about her capacity as a mother, as a carer, as a human human being that sort of goes beyond the call of duty. And how has she inspired you and, and the work that you do? Yeah, of course. Of course I can. My mum, it's really funny actually, because that podcast episode, I felt like I was worried that people would think it was a bit of a cop out doing an interview with my mum and like a really easy option. But um, actually, it's I think one of the most popular episodes. I think it's the second after my foster brother, Mez. Um, And for some reason, people, I guess, really connected with her because she speaks about, um, yeah, I guess, a very kind of maternal, a natural maternal, loving, motherly instinct that she had, of course, for her four biological kids, um, but now also for her four um, foster kids. So after Mez came to the UK, which is, yeah, five years ago now. So Mez was your first, uh, your first brother through adoption from Yes, exactly. I haven't even talked about that have I but yeah so just no, we'll get there there's so much to talk about <laughs> I know and that's such a good story as well um my hero really and I talk about him a lot because yeah it was not long after I first wrote that post that first post that kind of sparked off the worldwide tribe that my mum and dad were accepted and matched with a boy um an Eritrean boy who had just arrived to the UK from Calais um and he was 12 or 13 actually when he made it to the UK um 12 when he left um and his name was Meseret um and yeah he was my first of now four brothers um from four different countries so he's Eritrean then I have an Afghan brother a Sudanese brother and most recently a little brother from Libya um who's only been here for a few months and I feel sorry he joined you kind of over Christmas time now yeah exactly so he's pretty much only known England in this like very strange time my (laughs) my mum's trying to tell him like you don't usually have to queue up for the supermarket like this (laughs) (laughs) this isn't normal (laughs) exactly Exactly. So yeah, I think that episode with my mom um, was very simple. And it was about how when you put yourself into that role of mother or sister or parent, or um, it's, you really find that like that love that you have is, is infinite, really, and that it quickly happens. And that after 
Um, Mayors came to the family. A lot of people told us that we were really lucky because he'd fitted in so well and that, you know, it had been so easy. But actually, then it happened three more times after that. Um, So I don't think it is a matter of luck. I think that you can create that luck. I think, yeah, it definitely sounds like what I like about it is she's not she's not gushing she's not overflowing she's very calmly and and like why not why would I not welcome these boys why would I not love them like my children like and and there's just this um this just acceptance that this is just what it is and and that's what I actually find the most inspiring like just her just her not making a big deal out of it it's like this is what you know these are my boys and and because I think that of of course like the idea of adopting and 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 also because what I love and she was like oh of course a lot of people when they want to adopt want to adopt a young child or baby she was like I'll take the teenagers like (laughs) give me you know the the ones that you know that they say are the are the most difficult to find find homes for and the fact that she's you know was so open to that it was just very inspiring and she definitely shed a few tears had a few laughs to that episode Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's fine. I'll pass it on to her. I think that, yeah, it was a surprise to her as well, the reaction, because you're right that she thought that what she was sharing was very normal and came very naturally to her, I guess. Um, but yeah, maybe some of us or many of us do carry um, some kind of wall um that we need to kind of break down when it comes to people that look different sound different you know speak a different language have a different religion whatever and in our family we have really had to do that because you know two of my brothers are fasting at the moment for ramadan um we've got every single dietary requirement like two of us are vegan one of us is two of them eat halal like it's just you know we it's it's a good dinner conversation, that is for sure. You've got like a lot of the world and represented. And I think what it comes down to is that you can really love each other and, and have different beliefs. And um, yeah, it's been a real lesson in that, I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's talk a bit about your brothers. So, I mean, there's a spectacular two-part episode of your podcast with Mez, which I, I cannot recommend enough. People really need to hear Mez's story kind of in Mez's words, I think, just to really let it marinate. And I mean, the first part of the of the two-parter is his journey from Eritrea to the UK. And then the second episode is him, you know, talking about his experience being in the UK and like you recorded, I think, down on vacation in, in Kent. So, I mean, just like that, that kind of contrast of like those two trips, you know, his journey from Eritrea, which is just, you know, mind blowing and just a true testament to his resilience as a, as a human being, you know, and, but he's a young boy and he's, um, seeing his take on modern culture and UK culture and your family and your family dynamics it was it was really interesting so let's chat a little bit about a bit about Mez. Mm-hmm. Yeah it re- yes it makes me really happy to hear you speak about them and uh, the episodes and because yeah I think that sharing these stories especially in the first series they were all people who were very close to me um made it super easy to yeah chat to my mum and my brother you know but um also it in a sense it was easy but in a sense it's also very personal to share these stories so 
yeah, that kind of makes it you're more emotionally invested as well. But I think that's the beauty of it because it feels very, I mean, I mean, that's why I, I feel so drawn to those episodes is that, I mean, look at the way we're recording things now. It's like, there's a story all around you, do you know what I mean? And, and even more so, you know what I mean, in, in your family dynamic with your parents and your siblings. So I think that that's, that's actually what makes the podcast so special. Like, it's definitely not a cop out that you're interviewing your mom or your brother. It's like, it's the stories that, that we need to hear. And it's nice to hear them come in such a personal and intimate way, you know? Well, do you know what? I think that that's what we really need to break down some of these stereotypes and some of these negative perceptions that people might have. Like Mez has come and spoken with me in lots of schools since he's turned 18 and he's been really keen to share his story. And I think hearing these firsthand and, you know, he's very um, relatable for a lot of teenagers because he's also just finished school and, uh, yeah, I think it helps that like lots of the girls fancy him because he's really beautiful. Uh, so I do think that that helps, you know, that now maybe when people read a headline about refugees or migrants, maybe Mez's face will come to mind and that will help them break down some of those stereotypes and you can actually put a face to those things and think, you know what, like he's really not that scary. He's just a kid. And so um, have your brothers had any other trips for pleasure? since their their journey to the UK? Yeah, only Mez has been on a plane um, out of all four of them. So it's incredible that all four of them like crossed the world with no passport and no aeroplanes. Um, but my mum did take Mez to Holland to meet her Dutch family when he first got his asylum and his travel documents. Um, so for him, I mean, he says he wasn't scared, but I think he must have been a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, it is funny because especially coming back into the UK, I think my mum and Mez both talk about this a little bit in their podcast episodes that my mum was quite shocked by how, you know, they weren't just allowed into the UK on the way back, even though he does have the right travel documentation. They were kind of taken aside and put in like a pen and they had a security border control guy watching over them and that's never happened to my mum before, but Mez was very blasé and chilled about it. And like, you know, it's fine. Like I've got the right documentation. I'm not worried. Um, but yeah, they kind of said to my mum, okay, you can go. Um, but we're going to look more into his documents. And my mum was like, well, I'm not leaving without him. You know, he's my son, but, um, yeah, it, it's funny how like he was very chilled about that. He's been, he's dealt with a lot of worse, um, border situations, I guess. Um, but yeah, so he's the only one that's done that. And then the other three, um, two of them don't have their asylum yet. So don't have the ability to travel. And one of them, it took a long time for my Afghan brother to get his asylum. He was actually denied first. So even though his family were killed by the Taliban and he doesn't have any family left in Afghanistan and he'd already been in England for a year and a half and learned English and at college they still denied him and gave him a date where they would be deporting him to Afghanistan. Um, so we appealed and thankfully won the appeal. Um, but yeah, it's quite a crazy, broken system, asylum, and it takes very time and it has a big impact on mental health as well. You know, like it made my Afghan feel very displaced and unwanted and um, confused as to why, yeah, his claim kind of wasn't good enough like his story wasn't worthy of you know being safe what is that main barrier that you come up against when it comes to sort of um 
when it comes to people seeking asylum or fighting for the rights of refugees? Is it legislation? Is it funding? Is it misconceptions? Is it the luck of the draw? Like, I think that the biggest barrier that we are we do have when it comes to the refugee crisis is the misconceptions and the fear that a lot of people have around the other and things that look different and the people that look different from us. I think that that's our main, you know, when you get deep down to like the crux of what this, what the issue is. I mean, of course there's, there's, there's stuff like the asylum system um, and the hostile environment policy that the UK government has towards refugees and asylum seekers. Um, All of that is definitely a big issue, but I think what it all comes down to when you kind of really dig deep below the surface is is a, is a fear of a shift in a, something our life changing our comfort comfortable little bubble being penetrated so weird when on the other hand countries will accept an influx of tourists you know as as you know places like france or greece or you know even the uk will accept all these travelers as tourists and don't seem to hold any of those well i mean you know in the in the majority of situations, not that same sort of resistance. Yeah. So basically, if you're traveling for out of choice, you're all right. But if you're traveling out of need and necessity, survival, like yeah. survival, then no, we don't want you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah, that reminds me that you had this one episode uh, of your podcast with Brendan, who he's a firefighter and ex soldier that was volunteering in Greece. And he said this, he said, but why can I travel? If I want to go to any country, I could book a flight tomorrow and be there in a couple of days, even on the budget that I've got. I could be in any of these countries that these refugees come from within the next couple of days. Like, why is it any different for them? Like, do you do you see a future in sight where refugees can travel safely and legally to, uh, to a safe space? I hope so. I hope so. I think that that is where I would want us to be working towards. And I think we've got a long way to go. Um, But I really believe that stories and storytelling and education and understanding and awareness is what we need to make that happen. So that we can feel more empathy. Um, and that's what, you know, the Worldwide Tribe really focuses on is is that education piece of like, okay, I really believe that anyone who listens to Mez's story um, or ever meets Mez couldn't possibly feel anything other than the fact that he should deserve safety really exactly so let's talk action because uh, you know I feel from talking with people that I think people want to help but sometimes they struggle to find and authenticate maybe organizations or charities or channels and everyone wants to know that if their donations are going directly to a cause or like they, people want to like see the effect or know the the ways in which they can help. So, I mean, obviously you're very immersed in this world. And I was wondering if you could share with us a few of the organizations and charities um, that you recommend and that you see making a difference and, and the ways that, in which people can help out. And maybe it's not monetarily. It could be through volunteering or even like your mom with adoption, you know, so just a few of the sort of avenues and, and channels people can get involved in and help out. Yeah, of course. I think this is a really great question because I often think that it's a hard one to kind of answer as a 
blanket because people often say, you know, what can I do to help? Um, but I really think it's about looking internally at what you have to offer and what your skills are and what it is that you think that you can bring to this situation that, or any situation that might speak to you, whether that is the refugee crisis or your local animal shelter or whatever it might be, you know? Um, so I think it's really important to kind of really look at what you have to offer and when it comes to um the refugee crisis there are some amazing charities working on the ground that we support so we have a donation link that we then um work with grassroots organizations on the ground always grassroots ones that seem to be filling in the gaps where the large ngos are often not working um, or or slow to do so um and yes i would say that in terms of like levels of getting involved you're absolutely right that it doesn't need to be financial it doesn't even need to be like going anywhere um and you know putting up tents in a refugee camp it could just be educating yourself learning lockdown provides an amazing opportunity for us to listen to some podcasts read some articles watch some films uh, even learn a few words in a different language you know it can actually give us some time to kind of expand how we feel and our minds about this topic um and then share that with the people around you like start conversations about it that is like kind of accessible to everyone in terms of what we can do um and then yeah donate financially donate physical stuff there's lots of charities that take physical donations as well like choose love um help refugees they're friends of ours that are absolutely amazing and if you're looking to volunteer and actually did have time or want to go somewhere then indigo volunteers is an amazing partner of ours that provide it's like a matchmaking service with people to volunteer in placements so i would recommend them and can you tell us a bit about some of the because i know with worldwide tribe you've done some like workshops and programs in different places um create creative based kind of projects and workshops so can you tell us a bit about um some of those and, and the impacts those have had mm -hmm. yeah I guess that is a, a little bit of kind of my background coming into what we've been doing because I studied design and I always thought and think that like creative ways of expressing yourself are really important so we've made films but also ra run art projects um uh, there was one in Jordan that that kind of sticks in my mind um, that was really beautiful. Um, we worked with an amazing artist called Hannah Thomas and she um, encouraged people to express themselves and, and create self-portraits. Um, really weaving in kind of how they they felt as a as a form of art therapy and it was really beautiful actually um it kind of opened people up so yeah I think also working with people to express and tell their own stories. It's a really beautiful way of empowering, um, yeah, and amplifying voices that are often going unheard. So, um, for example, we had a citizen journalism project in Calais where we gave out um, disposable cameras and encouraged people to kind of document their own day and their own situation. Um, and we got all the cameras back almost, I think, by like a couple. Um, and the, the photographs were amazing, just beautiful little details of the camp that people yeah maybe coming in from the outside wouldn't see um so that was a really lovely project wow that sounds amazing and um in the episode with brendan when he was talking i mean that's a very it's quite a heavy episode uh to listen to because it's quite a a big story um and and i and i don't want to 
I don't want to do any spoiler alerts because I think people should definitely go and listen to it. But uh, it had a happy working, ending, though, right? Kind it of. does have a happy ending, a hundred percent. And so he was talking about when he was coming home from volunteering as search and rescuing Greece. Um, and it, this was like a few days before Christmas and that when he returned, it was pretty tough for him to go back to life as, you know, air quotes, normal. And so, I mean, definitely through the things that you're talking about with these projects and stuff, you get to see the sort of spirit and the joy that is very much still alive and well, and it hasn't been kind of trampled out through crazy journeys and, and circumstances. But how do you, you know, it's, when you share these stories and listen to these stories, I feel like you always carry a part of those stories in you. And how how do you assimilate when you kind of, what is, you know, jazz coming back to jazz, the young women, like when you're not working and as someone that helps so closely in these situations, like how do you protect yourself emotionally so, so that you don't get overwhelmed or burnt out? Mm-hmm. Well, that was definitely a learning curve and a big process to be able to do that because I was always someone and I hope that I still am someone who is very open to hearing and listening and like connecting with people. That's always been something that I've really enjoyed doing. But that does come with, you know, when you're hearing these stories, like I was talking about from Osman and um, even on that first day when we went to the camp, I we started to kind of document and film um and we made a film called Jangala about um the jungle uh, trying to answer some of these questions that I had when we first went to the camp but it meant that I spoke to a lot of people over a long period of time got to know them and like really listen to their stories and never had I expected as I said before to kind of hear these stories firsthand they're like things that you might hear in the news or in films or whatever and I really related to Brendan when he spoke about that going home for Christmas that time because it reminded me of 2015 when I went home for Christmas um, after the first few months of working in Calais and I remember finding it really really difficult that you know we were just sitting there having our normal Christmas nothing different from like all of the previous years but I was different and I had this new information in my brain and I just couldn't kind of piece those two things together that all of my friends in Calais like literally just across the water were freezing cold in their tents and Calais seems to be like always like a fair few degrees colder than London because it's like right on the coast and windy and just freezing um and yeah I I just I couldn't I couldn't just do all of the normal things that like I would normally do over Christmas and New Year like going out on Christmas Eve with all of my mates I just I felt like I I had a different perspective and view on the world and that was quite scary really because all of your friends are still the same and talking about the same things and yeah for it took me a while to realize that such is the world that these different realities do exist alongside each other and they me like living in a house in London isn't taking away from um people in Calais and having guilt around it didn't serve anyone and that thing that yeah I really had to learn um but also learning how to not take on secondhand trauma you know not to put some kind of protection around myself when listening to these stories that meant that I could be use 
what's the best way to put it to like uh, well i mean it's you know you need to be uh protect protect yourself so you can so you can share these stories you know and keep that that channel open exactly exactly and i think that i learned that that was my role that was what i needed to do that was what i was here for and i really believe that that is what I'm doing is amplifying these voices, giving them a platform. So yeah, I had to then allow them to not affect me so that I couldn't continue doing this work, you know? Do you take any other trips to kind of like decompress or recharge your batteries? Like how has travel played a part in your life sort of um, outside of the worldwide tribe? Yeah, I did actually. There was one transformational trip that I took about a year and a half into working in Calais. And it had been like really full on um, because everything was on social media as well. It was kind of 24 seven. So I felt like I couldn't switch off because something actually life changing could happen, you know, if I did and if I wasn't kind of responding all the time. And that really felt like a big um weight um that I really carried for about a year and a half until um my brother and I went away to um we went to South Africa and we went to a festival of sorts not really a festival it's um I guess an experience um called Africa Africa Burn which is a regional event of Burning Man. So it's like in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, no money, no phone signal, basically just a kind of a kind of makeshift city for a week in the desert. <laughs> and uh, it's really funny because I remember so well that we'd been wanting to go for years. And the year previously, we were sitting after a morning working on the shore in Lesvos, um, where we had our search and rescue team, where Brendan was based, um, that we were talk- who we were talking about before. And we were sitting, having a cup of tea and kind of looking over out at the sea and we were knackered. And uh, I got a notification on my phone saying that it was the day that Africa Burn tickets were going on sale. So I said this to my brother and he was like, oh, let me just see if I can like, you know, get us a couple. And I didn't really think that it would happen. Suddenly in a couple of minutes, he was like, okay, yeah, bought us two tickets. I was like, what? Shit. That means that we actually, we're actually going. Um, So it was quite good to have him to like, yeah, just encourage me to actually do that. Um, And it was such a healing experience because it showed me that I could have a week away from my phone and actually things were okay and life carried on. And I think I really needed that. And and that when you come back, you know, you are, you're more charged, you know, you're Mm -hmm. more, you've had a chance to kind of integrate um, everything that you've been learning and, and, and taking in without having to think about it. You know, sometimes I feel that people think doing nothing or like, having fun or being silly or taking time is like not productive. But I think that in fact, that is actually when things really sink into our consciousness. And and it makes you 10 times more productive and sharper. And uh, afterwards, I totally agree. I think that you need to, it's sharpening the saw, isn't it? It's like taking a, a minute to actually just re, um, yeah, te- get some perspective on what you want to do next. And when you've got your head in it, it's very difficult to to do that. So yeah, that was the first time that I did that. And since then, I've been better at, at doing that. And travel has definitely played a big part in that for me. Um, but yeah, I think that this lockdown has showed me that, and I don't know how this looks for you and for your community, 
how we need to actually be able to find those adventures and experiences kind of maybe more close to home or without the use of as much um, flying for sure. Of course, I mean, like at Trippin, you know, of course, when we hear there's like travel bans, we're like, oh dear, like <laughs> that's kind of like all we talk about. But in fact, it's it's not just about the travel, it is about like you know like you like the stories like the the cultures what is going on and I think even now more than ever that people can't travel I feel that the 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 things that we're doing at Trippin and the content that we're making is is keeping that wonder alive and keeping that um that reverence alive for for other cultures and other places and the off the beaten track and and hopefully and again, you know, with a kind of talking about sustainable travel and and traveling a bit more closer to home and taking like uh might be like a longer route, but it's a bit more um it has a bit less of an impact, you know what I mean? So I mean, and obviously at Trippin we're all about kind of like the cultural exchange and I actually saw that over this quarantine you were making some jungle bread. That you <laughs> from the Calais jungle, the the yeah. bread that they're eating there, and so I was wondering what types of things that you've discovered and come to love thanks to your brothers and and all the other men and women that you've connected with from around the world. Anything from like food to music or language. But yeah, food is a massive one. Um, I've never eaten as well as I have in refugee camps across the world. Really, I mean that, especially in Calais. Um, I ate amazing food. Uh, there were like many a restaurant. By the time that the camp was demolished, there was restaurants and shops and, you know, people baking those breads that were uh, incredible. There was a clay oven in the camp. I don't know how it got there, but it was there. Um, so, yeah, I did my best to recreate it, but definitely didn't do the best job but Eritrean food is new was new to me when um my Eritrean brother came to the UK and it's one of my favorites now if not my favorite cuisine um and I really like that way of eating as well which is you know everyone round one massive plate kind of more communal eating sharing off one plate eating with your hand um personally like that works for me I like that a lot um yeah so there food is is for sure a big one would you say that you're um in your family that I mean like you said that there's obviously a lot of different requirements and and you know dietary things but mm -hmm. would you say <laughs> that there's the been a big change from you know when you were all just around the the table before your brothers arrived and after like how how have they kind of changed your your family dynamic Mm, that's a really good question. I think that we've just learned and grown as a family that for us, it's been a real beautiful journey that I would honestly recommend to anybody that it's we've all gained so much from my four new brothers. And it's just a wider perspective of the world, I guess, um, and how they go about their, I mean, that all of them have been so accepting of very big differences to their lives you know and that's been a really really um I don't want to be really cliche and use these like really obvious words but it has been really inspirational for all of us I think that any kind of difficult thing that I come across I think about them and I'm like if they can do that then like I can do this do you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah for sure uh, yeah 
I think we've learned to really listen to each other. I think we've learned, as I said, I think just before we started recording, that uh, communication is not about language, that none of them spoke any English when they first came to the UK. And somehow we always managed to communicate very well. We always managed to understand each other. My newest brother, Ziad, um, the Libyan um, brother, he still doesn't really speak any English. He's learning fast. He's quick and clever. Um, But yeah, somehow we still managed to have conversations no problem and it actually it does help that my Sudanese brother also speaks Arabic so that's been a really beautiful thing to see as well that they're from two very different cultures but they're both Arabic speakers and um yeah maybe they would never have their paths would never have crossed in like other circumstances but now they're brothers and it's been really cool to see that they're kind of connecting over Ramadan and fighting over who's going to cook that night and 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 how do you how do you um you know help them to preserve their culture because I think obviously it must be you know in some of the episode with Mez you know and there is such a big a big change and there is like you know like like Mez was saying he had a job back home like he had his family he had all he had his culture he wasn't leaving because he didn't like his life. He was leaving because he he wasn't he didn't have freedom. How do you help them to to keep that element of their culture um, alive and well within them? Yeah, I think that's a really good question too, and really important um, for Mez. That was quite simple because not far from me there's an Eritrean church, which um, is at the heart of the Eritrean community in London. So that was again an eye-opener for me because I didn't know that it existed it doesn't really look like a church it's just like in a kind of residential area um and just looks like a house really but yeah so there's a whole Eritrean community not far from me and that's the beauty of I guess living for them just outside a big very diverse city so that those um those pockets of different nationalities that really do exist. And that has been really important for him to uphold his religion, to his language, you know, to be able to connect with people that I kind of share that um, with him and all of them. My mum my and dad are very mindful of that. They really make sure that, you know, they, uh, my dad's learning Arabic. Um, they'll try and make sure that they've got ingredients that the boys can kind of cook with if they want to make injera which is a uh, an Eritrean bread or whatever they would want halal meat you know things like that are, are really important in the house um that they are made to feel as like at home as possible um but yeah I think that they've also pushed for that themselves and and actually it's kind of naturally happened that they've found their communities. Basically, I didn't know that in my little town where my mum and dad live just outside of London, there's actually a lot of other Afghan refugees and Sudanese refugees that we didn't know about before and they kind of found each other and that's a really nice thing. That's amazing. So it's kind of um, connected you even more your brothers have then connected you even more within your own community with which you've exactly. been Exactly. They've opened my eyes to who knew that there was an Eritrean church down the road. I want to go to it one Sunday. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should for sure. I mean, wow, I feel like we've been, I could 
feel like I could talk to you for another hour. We've already been going for like an hour, but I guess we should we should round it off because now people have to go and listen to all of your podcasts if they haven't, <laughs> if they haven't heard it before. So I'm like, I just want to, you know, funnel them over there and get them listening to that. It's nice to um, tap into another podcasting community, I think. Yeah, I mean, we're new in the game. We're on this is our episode four, so we got we still got a long way to a long way to go. But this was to very much an enlightening, informative conversation. So, you know, it was I've been wanting to speak to you for a couple of months now. So I, this this conversation has been ticking around in my brain, and and like I said, I've really been taking in a lot of your podcasts, which is the Worldwide Tribe podcast. You can search it on all your podcast streaming platforms. I highly recommend it. Um, and and yeah, you know, here at Trip, and we're just so grateful for the chance to speak to you. Like I said before, you know, we definitely recognize travel for pleasure, like as a privilege. And it's just so great to have an opportunity to chat to you and hear your story and the stories of those around you and hopefully stir something up in people that hear this conversation and switch them on to the incredible work you do. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you too. It really means a lot that you've listened to these episodes and that they do, yeah, they they have, um, they evoke an emotion, um, which is, yeah, really, I guess what it's about. So thank you for that. I appreciate you. No, a total pleasure. And I want to, ha- I want to let you have the last word. So as we kind of, you know, we're moving forward into a world that is still a little bit unknown um what that will look like you know kind of post lockdown post quarantine post this global experience um and and I guess like with that unknown there's there is a lot of potential so if you could just impart sort of your your wish or your intention um for this kind of new world or or you know your little closing thought on how we can move forward my wish is for us to continue to ask questions and to be curious when it comes to not believing everything that we read, not taking everything, all of these constructs and structures that we are kind of so used to and comfortable within for granted, because I think that this time has shown us that those things can be taken away, those things can change, and they are out of our control. So keep questioning them, um, keep a questioning mind. I think that that curiosity has really brought me a lot um, to places, to people and like even my little brothers really. So yeah, I think that would be my closing thoughts. We do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jazz. Go ahead and subscribe if you did. You can connect with us on Instagram at tripping.world and make sure you check out our website www.tripping.world for more deep dives into culture, creativity and communities from around the globe. My name is Yasmin. Thank you for listening. Until next time, stay tripping.